morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin this morning. We want to welcome everyone to the services here at West Irwin. And we're awful glad that you're, that you're with us this morning. As we begin our worship service this morning, let's all stand as we sing our first couple of songs. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad. He has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad, I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Give me the Bible, star of gladness gleaming, to cheer the wonder, lone and tempest awes. No storm can hide that radiant, peaceful gleaming, since Jesus came seek and save the lost. Give me the Bible, holy message shining. Thy light shall guide me in the narrow way. Precept and promise, law and love combining, till night shall vanish in eternal day. Give me the Bible, 
won't it be wonderful there? So, we're certainly glad to have you here this morning. Uh, it's been a great weekend, and it's still ongoing. We still have a lot to look forward to, and we appreciate your presence. And uh, we have quite a few visitors. Uh, just grab somebody, shake their hand, introduce yourself, and we'll do the same as members will. Want to get to know you? Going to have a meal across the street following service today, so you're invited to that as well. If you're watching online, then uh, come on down if you want, and we'll have dinner, have lunch. But we're glad you're with us. Glad you're with us, and uh, you're in for a treat today. So, I have one announcement. Uh, Jonathan Ramirez's father has passed away. Uh, I don't have any details uh, regarding anything else as far as that matter goes. But let's keep the Ramirez family in our prayers. And uh, if you don't know it already, uh, Kyle Butts is here to speak with us today on uh, from Apologetics Press. Uh, he's a very, very smart man. And uh, we want to acknowledge all of those who's made this uh, event possible, from our volunteers to our staff to those who uh, prepared, prepared for food, and just in any capacity, our security. Uh, we're certainly glad that, that you were able to do that. If you would please stand, if you had any part in this service, we want to recognize you and acknowledge you. I guess they're all working. There's Bill and Sharon. Well, we got a couple, so thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a smart person, uh, I mean, I like to have knowledge, but it's always good to, to learn more. And I've certainly learned a lot this weekend. And I'm not the smartest man in the room, and I'm not even the smartest man on our row over here, our person. But uh, I've learned a lot, and I know that you will uh, and have this weekend, and we're certainly glad that you're here. I'm going to read from Revelations 4, verse 11, and then we'll have a prayer. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you created all things. We ask that you continue to create, create in us a clean heart, create a fellowship of love and unity, create a renewed purpose of your spirit and of people who have hearts and minds turned to you. We are blessed to be part of your church here at West Irwin. We are thankful for the talents that you've given us, and may we use these gifts to bring others to know you. We thank you for brethren such as Kyle Budd and his ability to show us to strengthen ways to strengthen our faith and ways to teach others about your creation. We pray for Kyle's family, for organizations such as Apologetic Express who increase our knowledge and faith. We thank you for all of those who've made this event possible. We are blessed with the church, and we thank you for our members, our ministers, our staff, our teachers, deacons, and volunteers who work tirelessly. Please be with us as elders and give us wisdom to guide this church as you would have us. We pray for our sick and those on our prayer and care list. We pray for Clinton Culpepper, David Reynolds, Chris's father, Janice Hardaway, the Ramirez family, and the passing of Jonathan's father. Kathy Higdon, David Carter, Davy Carter's sister, Aiden O'Donnell, the grandson of Joanne Wilkinson, Dolores Kennedy's nephew, Andy Gentry, 
and Abby Andrews, Jim Gibson's great niece, and for the many more who are having health and personal issues. We have many challenges in our lives, and we ask that you give us strength and trust in you to turn away from sin. Thank you for Jesus, your Son, and our Savior. Through him we pray. Amen. As people who have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, who recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, who recognize the Bible as his inspired word, we meet every first day of the week to do what we're about to do right now, which is to partake of some bread that is the body of Christ and some fruit of the vine that is his blood. For Christians, it's a very solemn occasion It's a very introspective occasion, and yet it's also a very joyful occasion. We take this together as a family. Even those of our family who are watching online will have some kind of communion to take with us and be right there along with us. Many times when we do this, we quote from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we remember that night when Jesus instituted this before his death. And he said that this bread is my body and this cup is my blood. Many times we quote from 1 Corinthians 11. And we're reminded that for the church at Corinth, 
Paul's message to them was to be considerate of one another as they partook of this communion, but also as they lived their lives, that this was a, the church's family meal, that they didn't take this without acknowledging that they are a part of a family and are loved and are called to love themselves. This morning, I want to read one verse, and that's verse 26 from 1 Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This weekend, we've been focused in very wonderful sessions from our brother Kyle about proclaiming and being prepared to proclaim, engaging in the discussion, passing along our faith, and realizing that it's a very credible faith that we have, and it's a faith that people in our circles need to hear. And sometimes it's good for us to put in that word, to make that statement, to help others to know that we believe. What we're about to do right now is a proclamation. It's the one thing that we do that is concrete and physical and of substance in a very earthy, very real, very common way, eating and drinking. And yet at the same time, because it commemorates what Jesus did for us and what we are called to do for others, it is the most important moment of our week. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we're grateful for your son, for the life that he gave, for the body that was broken for us. We pray your blessings on this bread and upon us as we seek to give our lives in your service for the sake of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's bow together. Father, as we partake of this communion today, we remember the blood that was shed for us on the cross. And we're thankful for the great sacrifice that you made in giving your son, that he made in giving his life. Father, help us as we look across the table to those that we partake this family meal with today that you will help us, Father, to be reminded that in the same way Jesus sacrificed his life for us, we are to sacrifice for the sake of others. Father, bless this cup. Bless us as we partake of it, that we too will be moved, Father, to give ourselves to thee for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many times at this moment in our service, we have highlighted particular ministries. Uh, as our shepherd David Hammond shared earlier, today we're, we're seeing that lived out, this ministry that the church here offers through this seminar. Too many to thank, 
too many to name, too many jobs and tasks to even list. But let me say thank you to all who have served, to all who have helped, to all who have participated. And let's be reminded as we pray about what part of what makes this all possible is the generosity of this church family in giving themselves first, as the Corinthians did, were called to do, in giving their resources, their monetary resources, but also in giving their time and their energy and their gifts for the sake of others to share this wonderful good news that we have with the world. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we praise you for all of the gifts that you've given us. We praise you, Father, for the call to give, to be a part of your mission, your work, to be a part of impacting the lives of others with your message. Father, bless those who give. Bless those, Father, who are leaders in this church and leaders in our ministry who use these funds and these blessings and these resources, these people, to try to spread your kingdom, to try to share your word, to spread your love. Father, we are so very, very blessed, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.
Good morning. So I have the pleasure and was honored uh, when Bill asked if I could introduce Kyle Butt. Uh, I met Kyle at Friedhardham University when I was there as a freshman in 96, and he was there, I was there for three years before I transferred. Uh, I got to know him pretty well. We ran in some same circles, uh, weren't always together, but had a core group of friends that were together. Many of he's mentioned in uh, Eric Lyons and some people that he works with that I, I knew very well. Honored to have known him there. Um, haven't seen him in 22 years, uh, but it is a pleasure to have had him here and to stay with us and to spend time. It's been a fantastic weekend. Uh, he spent uh, 22 years or years there and has met his wife, Bethany. Uh, they've been together for 20-plus years now. Kyle, I think, married 22-plus years. He's been at Apologetic Express for 22 years. Uh, that's a fantastic organization that's been around since, I think, 79. Uh, so it has been a, a, a good thing that he's done there. He I, may not want me to tell you this, but I have to tell you anyway. So Heather asked me if I had a story. And I, I didn't have one, so I had to come up with one, or she actually told me one. First time she met Kyle at Fried Hardeman, she was a freshman sitting at a picnic table. I think it was orientation, Mid-South Youth Camp. And he walked up, sat down at the picnic table with a rubber glove. And he said, you know what to do with this rubber glove? And she said, no. And so he proceeded to take the rubber glove, put it over his head, pull it down over his nose, leave his mouth open, and begin to blow this rubber glove up with his nose until it balloons out. So this is the man that's speaking to us today so, and, and has done a fantastic job speaking throughout this weekend. If you haven't been here, you've missed out. Uh, it is a pleasure to have him here doing great things here. We appreciate the time that we've spent. Grateful to Bethany, his three children, who've allowed him to come to sacrifice their time away from their father and their husband. Uh, so grateful to them, but grateful for you for being here. Uh, without wasting any more of his time, I introduce Kyle Butt, and I uh, hope that we can learn another valuable lesson from you. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate that. It really is a fascinating trick. You should try it sometimes. It can get messy, but it is exciting. Had a great time with you this weekend. Been so fun. Have loved staying with the Monahans and have enjoyed getting to know their family more. Have always respected and loved Kelly and known him for years now. Like I said, we hadn't done a whole lot of contacting each other in the last 22 years or so, but what I know about him and from the time we've spent together is just respect him, love his family, know you guys do too, and know that they are plugged in here to doing a lot of the good work that you guys are doing, and I really appreciate that. Tommy loved Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was Tommy's sixth grade science teacher, and for the first time in Tommy's life, he was actually having fun learning something. He loved the science class, and he couldn't remember a time when he really was engaged in any of the subjects. But this particular one was that way, and the reason for that was because Mr. Johnson, his teacher, felt like he needed to get the kids engaged. And so he would do things that other teachers hadn't done up to this point. He would take the children on nature walks and show them all the various different things about nature. Every now and then, Mr. Johnson would say something like, class, isn't it amazing how this beetle evolved the ability to protect itself? Or class, isn't it amazing how this dragonfly evolved the ability to fly? Now, Tommy knew that he hadn't been taught that exactly, but he didn't really figure out what was being said until today. Today was very different. Today, Mr. Johnson 
stood before class, as he normally did to start class, and he said, class, today we've got a really exciting lesson. We're going to learn how the universe originated, how it got here. Can anybody tell me how that happened? Eugene Lipton's hand shot up. Eugene was, of course, the student who knew everything there was to know, at least from a sixth grade perspective, on science. He read his science book for fun. He made a 100 on every single science test that was ever given, unless there was a bonus question. And then he made a 101 or 102, depending on how much the bonus question was worth. And he said, as Mr. Johnson said, yes, Eugene, can you tell us how the universe got here? He went into the textbook spiel. 13.82 billion years ago, there was a tiny singularity that exploded in what is commonly referred to in scientific circles as the Big Bang. That explosion brought the universe into existence, and since that time, all organisms have evolved on planet Earth from 4.8 billion years ago until now from a single-celled organism that came from non-living chemicals. Textbooks fail. God not involved. Some huge explosion that brought the universe into existence, and then... uh, naturalistic evolutionary process that resulted in humans from the first single-celled organism. Now, there was a class of 30 people, six graders, most of them 12 years old or so, and about 26 of them knew that's not what they had been taught. In fact, they knew that they had been taught that there is a God and that God spoke the world into existence and it didn't have anything to do with a big explosion billions of years ago. They knew that they weren't taught that humans evolved from lower primates and ultimately from single-celled organisms, but were created by God in his image. They knew that's what they had been taught. At least in some shape, form, or fashion, they were realizing that what they just heard was not what they had been taught. And Tommy was one of those young people, and he knew that what had just been stated was not what his parents had taught him. It's not what he had learned at church. It's not what he had always thought. And now the picture was starting to coalesce. He started to see that those things that Mr. Johnson had been saying were kind of leading up to this. But he didn't know what to do with it. And he was very glad when Stephen raised his hand. Stephen's dad preached at the local congregation down the road. And Mr. Johnson, with a smile on his face, said, Yes, Stephen, do you have a question? And Stephen, in a real shaky but brave, kind of nervous-sounding voice, said, That's not right. Mr. Johnson said, what's not right? Stephen said that idea about a big explosion causing the earth and humans evolving from lower animals, that's not correct. He said, oh, really? That's what's in our science book, and that's what most scientists in the world believe, and that's what's written in most of the peer-reviewed scientific journals. Where would you get the idea that that's not correct? Stephen said, well, my dad taught me that that's not true, that God created the world. Now, that's what most of the kids' parents had taught them, and so they wanted to know what Mr. Johnson would do with this idea, and they were very surprised when a large smile crept across his face and said, oh, you know, I was hoping somebody would bring that up. Stephen, where'd your dad get that idea? And Stephen said, from the Bible. Mr. Johnson said, yeah, that's exactly right. And they were even more surprised when he went over to his top desk drawer and opened it and pulled out a black leather-bound book. And he said, did your dad's Bible look anything like this? And it did. Looked very similar to it. And he said, let me tell you about this Bible. There are some things in it that are really good. In fact, one man said that you should do unto others as you want them to do to you. Great moral advice. He said, but this is a really old book. 
And he opened it and started reading some passages from it, and it sounded really very old. It had some maketh and createth and hast and shalt and these and thous. And he said, class, does that sound like an old book to you? It did sound old. And he said, this was written, some of it was written several thousand years ago. And modern science has shown that the things that are written in this book aren't scientific. In fact, he said, this is not a science book. And in fact, it's very incorrect in several places because the people wrote it were, who wrote it were kind of primitive. And he said with a chuckle, the people who wrote this book thought the earth was flat. And he turned to a passage that talked about the four corners of the globe. And he said, as he walked over to the globe that was in their classroom and spun it, we know the world's not flat, don't we? He said, modern science has disproven this book. And he closed that Bible and he put it back in the desk drawer. And 30 kids sat in his class wondering, what in the world do we do now? Do you think that happens in this country in one shape, form, or fashion? You know, in one sense, that's an illustration. In one sense, there's no Tommy, there's no Mr. Johnson, there's no Eugene. In one sense, that is just a a story. But do you think I could stand before you and tell you real stories with real people of events and things like that that happen on a regular basis. Sometimes it's in sixth grade. Sometimes it's in ninth grade biology. Sometimes it's a senior class where a professor or a teacher in high school decides they don't want this child leaving without an attack on their faith, although they would not put it that way. Many times it's a freshman in high school orientation class where it's comparative religions or it's a biology or science class where the professor stands up and admits right out front that the purpose of this class is going to be nothing more than to destroy faith in the Bible and in God and in Jesus Christ if any of the kids in that class have that. I could literally tell you scores of stories of people who have come to me and said, this happened to me, this happened to my friend, this happened to my children. It happens on a regular basis. And so what we need to recognize is while maybe that didn't happen to us growing up, maybe it didn't happen where you were, and maybe it's not happening where you are now or where your children are now, there's a very good chance that it will. When you teach your kids to drive, and there's a very good chance that they're going to come to a stoplight, What do you teach them to do? Stop. Because if they don't understand what to do when they come to a stoplight, there's going to be some very serious repercussions in many instances. When you know that young people are going to encounter a certain situation, you prepare them for that so it doesn't end up being catastrophic, dangerous, or detrimental or destructive in some way. Now, if we know that in our nation there is a very good chance that our children are going to be accosted by unbelief, the simple question is this. Are we preparing them to be ready to deal with that? As we look at what's going on in the nation, some of you may have seen some of these stats, maybe not, but... If you ask the average person on any given street in the United States of America, hey, what are you religiously? 
with what religion do you identify? One out of four will say no religion whatsoever. They have been given the name nuns, N-O-N-E-S, meaning no religion, none whatsoever. And so 25% of all the people in the nation say we're not affiliated with any religion. We don't go to any type of church. We don't have any type of structure in any religious. Now, some of them might say they believe in some type of force of creation or some type of spirit being. But if you just say, hey, what religious affiliation do you have? Zero. Not a Muslim, not a Christian, not a Hindu, nothing. If you then look at the 18 through 29-year-olds, and just instead of asking every person on the street, you wait until you see somebody who's 18 to 29, and you ask them, what are you? 18 to 29-year-olds will explain to you that they are nuns. 40% of them, approximately, 39, 40%. This is a little bit dated 2016, so I'd say it's certainly up to 40% now. So four out of 10 would say, we don't have any religious affiliation whatsoever. And then if you ask, okay, these young people, 18 through 29, 40% of them have no religious affiliation. You ask them, did you have? Did you have some type of religious training growing up? And 64% of them say, yeah, we were raised religious. We're just not now. Yesterday, the question was asked, you know, what's going on in the Lord's Church as far as our young people? Right now, in the United States of America, you have in any religious group, any group that calls themselves Christians, you have uh, the stat that says if they are 13 years old in the next 10 to 15 years, any group that calls themselves Christians, you're going to lose about 60% of those, 6 out of 10. They're no longer going to be affiliated with any church whatsoever. Well, not your church, and many of them no church whatsoever. In the Lord's church, if you were to ask that same question, how many of our young people are we losing? We're losing 40%. Four out of ten of the young people from 13 in the next 15 years or so will no longer be members of the Lord's church. Most of them will not be religious at all, those young people who leave, 40%. So you look at that and think, wow, you know, it's not 60%. It's only 40. Let me ask you a question right now. If there was a disease of some sort that was killing 40% of our young people, would that be something concerning to you? (laughs) If there was one that was killing only 0.03% of the people that got it, would that be concerning to you? Absolutely. But then if there was one that was killing 40 out of every 100 that got it, you know, yeah, in one sense, we might look at that and say, okay, we're not losing 60%, we're doing better. But I always think that better comparison is so odd. Okay, you're doing better. I always then compare that to which do you like better? Do you like getting punched in the face or in the stomach? Better. Okay, nobody likes getting punched at all. That comparison of, okay, we're doing better than 60%, but we're still losing 40%. Okay, just in your mind, think of 10 kids that are sitting on these first two rows that are in your congregation now and just ask yourself, which four do you want to be gone? You know, I think that's pretty simple calculation there. And that would be none of them. We want them all to remain faithful, strong Christians. And so as you look at this idea, the next question that you want to know. So let's say we go out and we ask all 200 and something people, ages, what, 18 to 29, hey, are you religious? And 40% of those say no. 
Not, not religious at all. So we've now gathered a hundred 18 through 29 year olds who have all said, we do not have any religious affiliation whatsoever. Okay? So work with me. We've got a hundred of those. They're 18 to 29 years old. And we have 100 who have all said we're not religious at all. So then we ask them the next question. How many of you were raised religious? Many of you raised in Christian families. How many of you were raised religious and are not now? So out of the 100 that we have, 64% say they were raised religious and they're not. So out of the 100, now we have 64 who say we were raised religious and we're not religious anymore. Okay? Now, what's the next question you ask those 64 kids? Oh, you know the next question, I think. Why? Why did you leave? They say, well, because we no longer believe. What do you mean you no longer believe? Well, there are things that as you ask these young people why they left... It's troubling to find why they leave certain places. And one of the reasons is because what they were taught in those places was incorrect. In fact, lots of times we will have atheists come to us and they will say, Hey, I think that your God is immoral. The Bible teaches stuff that's wrong. But they won't really have a clue what the Bible actually teaches. I remember several years ago, I was in the Florence, Alabama area, and there were a couple very outspoken young men who were atheists, and they came to me, and they were friends of a friend of mine, so he arranged so that we could meet them for lunch. And we sat down, and I asked them the simple question, why are you atheists? And they said, well, we just can't believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible. And I said, why not? And they went into a spill that was about five minutes long about how God was immoral because he created some people to be saved and some people to be lost and they didn't think that it would ever be right for a God to send some people to hell and some people to heaven regardless of what they chose to do. And this idea of inherited sin and how babies come into the world not having a choice about what they have been born with and they're born with sin and God then would send those babies to hell if they have... And I listen. I listened to him about five minutes or so. And at the end of it, I said, yeah, no, I wouldn't believe in God like that either. They said, what you do? That's what the Bible teaches. I said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. I said, that's what some people have said the Bible teaches. But the Bible actually says the soul that sins shall die. Unless you become as little children, you shall no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Children, the Bible does never say, are born with sin. And people are not born to go to heaven or to go to hell. They are given a choice and they get to make that choice. They said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. I said, yeah, it is. And here's where it says it. They looked at me shocked. And they said, we have never talked to someone who calls themselves a Christian that has ever said anything like that to us. Now, do you think if a person grows up in a family or a home or a teaching environment where they are told things about God, like that he creates babies with sin and people don't have a choice as to where they're going to spend eternity and some are created to go to heaven and some are reprobate and created to go to hell, do you think that's going to be detrimental to a kid's faith when they start thinking through that type of situation? And how unfair it would be for a parent to punish them for no choice of their own? Well, yeah, they know that's not fair. And so as you look at one of the main reasons that 
young people are leaving what they call Christian environments is because they're learning things that aren't really from the Bible and they're certainly not Christian. As you read Richard Dawkins' statement, the sin of Adam and Eve is thought to have passed down through the male line. What kind of ethical philosophy is it that condemns every child, even before it is born, to inherit the sin of a remote ancestor? As you continue with this, Martin Luther, I want you to listen to this statement. This is, I think, probably surprising to many of you. Out of a sense of a Christian commitment, I appeal to all those who baptize, sponsor infants, or witness a baptism to take to heart the tremendous work and great solemnity present here. For here in the words of these prayers, you hear how plaintively and earnestly the Christian church brings the infant to God, confesses before him with such unchanging, undoubting words that the infant is possessed by the devil and a child of sin and wrath, and so diligently asks for help and grace through baptism that the infant may become a child of God. Now, what's interesting is Luther is attributed to that idea that faith only is the way that a person is saved. Luther never taught that. In fact, Luther said baptism was absolutely essential for salvation, but he then took it even more incorrectly. And that's correct that baptism is necessary for salvation, but he applied it to children and said, children are possessed by the devil, and if you do not baptize them, they're going to hell. Now, if you grew up in a congregation or in a teaching environment where someone said that a newborn child was possessed by the devil, do you think as you grew and matured, you would start to realize there's something wrong with that? You know, and what happens lots of times is they recognize there's something wrong with that teaching. Young people do. But instead of saying, I'm going to find out what the Bible really says, they assume that that's what the Bible says. And they say, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. You know, well, guess what? I wouldn't either if that's what the Bible was teaching. But it's not. And so one of the reasons that our young people are leaving churches is they're being taught incorrectly, and that's not getting corrected. And so they're growing up thinking, well, I don't want to be a part of a group that says babies are going to hell or a group that says I don't have a choice whether I go to heaven or to hell. I don't want any of that. And you can understand that. The next thing that I think our young people are running into is a mistaken view of faith. And as you listen to Sam Harris here, he says, In fact, every religion preaches the truth of propositions for which no evidence is even conceivable. This put the leap in Kierkegaard's leap of faith. Now, most people, and if you look in many dictionaries, they're going to give you a definition of faith that says something like this. The Merriam-Webster's online dictionary says, believing in something you can't prove. The American Heritage Dictionary from several years ago says, believing in something, now catch this, that you know is not true. Hmm. Definition of faith is believing in something you know is not true. You know, lots of times our young people are told that faith is when you don't have evidence, so you just shut your eyes and you just jump. It's from Soren Kierkegaard's writings. He was basically a religious philosopher, and he said, you know, faith is when you come to the point where you can't prove anything further. You want to be over there with the idea that God exists and the idea that the Bible is God's word, but you're over here with the evidence, and so to get there, there's no evidence, and so what do you do? Just back up, close your eyes, and jump. Do you know that's never been the definition of biblical faith, ever? In Acts chapter 1, 
Luke presents to his readers the fact that Jesus had presented himself alive by many infallible proofs. Peter said, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. What were eyewitnesses of the things that we are teaching you? Do you know God has never, ever even come close to suggesting that faith is believing something you can't prove? In fact, it's always been believing something you know is true, but you haven't seen yet, and you know it based on the evidence. Jesus said, you need to believe that I'm the Son of God, but you need to believe it by faith. But if I'm the only one that tells you that, then you don't have to believe it. Let me tell you why you should, by faith, believe that I'm the Son of God when he was talking to his apostles. Number one, because I'm doing works that nobody has ever done before. Number two, because a voice came out of heaven twice that told you I'm the Son of God. Number three, I've fulfilled every predictive prophecy that was written, some of them a thousand years or more before I arrived on this planet. Number four, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to die and I'm going to come back from the grave and you're going to get to see and touch and hear my new resurrected body talk to you and then number five I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to Jerusalem it's going to be destroyed exactly like I tell you in Matthew chapter 24 and because of all these reasons you should know for a fact that I'm the son of God even though you've never seen me in my glory and then when I say to you in John chapter 14 1 you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many Mansions, if it weren't so, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. You know that's going to happen because every time I've ever told you anything, it's always been true. Whew, it's a mouthful, wasn't it? And what are we trying to say? Biblical faith has always been based on evidence. These are the things you know. This is the thing you haven't seen yet, but you know it. And you behave in a way that you know it to be true. You have biblical faith in the fact that if you obey the plan of salvation and you repent of your sins, that when you are buried in that watery grave of baptism, you don't see it happen. But you know that that's the point at which you come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ and your sins are forgiven. Now, you never saw it happen. But you can know it happened for a fact. That is biblical faith. Now, if you tell a young person, hey, listen, in everything else in your life, you need evidence and you need to look at it and you need to verify it and you need to only follow those conclusions that there is evidence that warrants the conclusion. But in your religious life, you don't. Just, you know, if you have a really warm, fuzzy feeling in your heart and that warm feeling in your heart tells you that something is true, then that must be true. I was listening on tape to Charles Dickens' book, David Copperfield, and the guy there who was the main character said, I had believed it so long it had to be true. Oh, let that sink in. You know, I didn't have evidence for it. I I just believed it for the last 50 years, so it had to be true. Well, you see the problem with that. If in every other aspect of a kid's life you demand that they think through it properly and look at the evidence and only follow the evidence where it leads but then you come to your religious faith and say yeah but you don't really have to have that the fact of the matter is there's more evidence for the validity of Christianity and the inspiration of the Bible and the existence of God than you've got a lifetime to study but sadly it is true that many people say hey I can't prove this to you but I really believe it is You know what's interesting to me? You'd never accept that from another religious group that suggested that to be the approach to their religion. You know, if a person said tragically that 
a suicide bomber straps a bomb vest underneath his coat and walks into a place where there are lots of quote-unquote infidels. Do you think he really firmly believes in his heart the religion that he has involved himself in that he thinks is suggesting to him he should blow himself up along with all these other people? you think he really has a firm feeling in his heart that that's true? Sure he does. But you wouldn't accept that as evidence. But sometimes we, in the Lord's church, have the statement that, hey, when your kid comes to you and says, what about dinosaurs? I don't know, but you know, we don't really have evidence for that. You just have to believe it. No, you don't. There's never been a statement by God that says believe stuff without evidence. In fact, he was the one that gave us the instructions at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where he says, test all things. Hold on to what's good. What was he saying? Look at things with an open mind, study them carefully, critically consider them, and when you do, you'll arrive at Christianity. Well, if you tell your kids, hey, we don't have evidence for this. We wish we did. You got evidence for all this other scientific stuff. We don't have evidence for religion, so close them and jump. That close them and jump is not a biblical definition of faith. And when young people are told that it is, it can be very, very destructive. I can't tell you how many young people have come to me and said, you know, I, I have always thought you don't have to prove anything in the Bible. And I don't know why you guys, they don't say it like this exactly, but I don't know why you guys waste your time coming up with evidence. All you got to do is just believe it. Well, that, that's never been what Jesus, God, or the Bible writers suggested as the approach to biblical faith. You test it all and only hold on to what's good. And when you do, the Bible writers and God are confident that if you have an honest heart, you'll arrive at the truth that there is a God, that the Bible is God's word, that Jesus Christ is God's son. Continue with me. Dawkins says, the whole point of religious faith, its strength and chief glory, is that it doesn't depend on rational justification. Christianity, just as much as Islam, teaches children that unquestioned faith is a virtue. You don't have to make the case for what you believe. Is that true? You don't have to make the case for what you believe. When Paul stood before Festus and he said, I'm not crazy, I speak the words of truth and reason. I speak the words of truth, meaning I'm telling you actually what happened, and reason, meaning I'm thinking properly about what happens. Now, you can have truth and not think properly about that truth, or you can think something is true and it's not and think right about it but leads you to the wrong conclusion. But what Paul said is Christianity is based on what really happens and correct thinking about what really happens. That is Christianity. Now, sadly, so many religions actually do teach that, and several versions of Christianity actually do teach that, that young people are confused because they grew up thinking, yeah, I don't really have to have evidence for this, so why are you even worrying about it? When that's not biblical teaching. As we continue... It's time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give one another to keep believing when reason fails. Not true. In fact, when Paul said, I speak the words of truth and reason, that is biblical faith. Now, as we continue to ask questions, one of the answers we get is because they no longer believe things like that, which in one sense, we would say, okay, good, you, you never should have believed things like that. Those things aren't true. The next aspect of these 64 young people who at one time were religious and they're not religious anymore, when we say, okay, what do you give as the reason for why you have left, they say, well, 
about half of the religious nuns who were raised in religion indicated that a lack of belief led them away from religion. This includes many respondents who mentioned science as the reason they don't believe in their biblical teachings. You know, because I grew up and realized it was a story like Santa or the Easter Bunny, I realized that religion is in complete contradiction with the rational and scientific world, and to continue to subscribe to a religion would be hypocritical. It no longer fits what I understand of the universe. Now, what we've done this weekend, I think, is shown that if you really follow the evidence where it leads, and you just deal with legitimate scientific reasoning, and you apply it correctly across the board, that science certainly does not preclude the existence of God. In fact, it demands the existence of God. And that if you really look at things with an open mind, study them carefully, and critically consider them, you can apply those ideas to the current evolutionary view and the evidences, put that in quotation, of evolution in the various textbooks, and you will see that what we are told is scientific fact often is not, and that absolutely, positively, everything we know to be scientific fact corresponds perfectly with what the Bible teaches. And that's a fact. So these young people are saying, you know, I left because it doesn't fit with science. Yes, it does. You haven't been taught that, but it absolutely, positively does. But let's see what ultimately happens in things of this nature. Learning about evolution when I went away to college, lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence for a creator, I just realized somewhere along the line that I don't believe anymore. It looks like maybe half of those 64 young people, 32 of them or so, said, I don't believe. And then when asked, what do you mean you don't believe? Well, I just, I don't think the creation scientific. I don't think the Bible is actually literally true. I just don't believe that anymore. Why? Well, as you continue, there are several reasons. This to me is one of the saddest statements that I've read that I have in any of my PowerPoints. And I think you can see why. This man is 80 years old. Was at the time. I think he's probably dead now. I don't know who he is. He doesn't believe this anymore if he is. But I want you to listen to what he says. When I was a young person in the 40s, Being atheist was work. There were almost no books on the topic, no magazine articles, no columns in the newspapers. Everyone was assumed to be some sort of theist. Now, today the books of Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens are readily available to any young person questioning the religion he or she was born into. The Internet offers a plethora of information about both theism and atheism, so it's much easier to figure out if atheism is a good fit. Add to that fact the fact that young people are openly questioning and their religion of birth, those religions don't have good answers to skeptics, and it's a wonder more young people haven't come over. Sadly, it's true that many of the religions that these young people have been born in and raised in and many of the congregations, when they ran into information that troubled them and they asked somebody, they didn't get a good answer. My mother does ladies' days and travels all over the country. She was teaching at a small congregation outside of Columbia, Tennessee, and she was teaching the ladies' class there. She was talking to them about dinosaurs, and the lady said, oh, well, we know about those. And she said, oh, great, great, what do you know about them? And the 13 ladies in the class said, oh, our preacher told us that they never existed, that they were just made up by evolutionists, and that dinosaurs don't fit in the Bible at all, and that we should never really teach our kids about them at all because they didn't exist. That's false. And what happens when a 12-year-old 
is told dinosaurs didn't exist, and then they go on an overnight camping trip to the Grand Canyon or to somewhere out in Arizona, and they are on a dinosaur dig, and they pull a Tyrannosaurus rex tooth out of the ground, that there's no possible way it could have been planted there. And they were somehow told that dinosaurs cause a problem for the Bible, and they just found a Tyrannosaurus rex tooth. And in their mind, they feel like they have to choose between the Bible and this Tyrannosaurus Rex tooth, and they're holding that right in their hand. And they'd always been told that dinosaurs never existed. You know, unless somebody gets to them with the truth that dinosaurs fit perfectly into a biblical framework, and that they certainly did exist, and they were designed to bring glory to God, they're going to have a problem. And as you continue looking at this idea... He says, something significant, Dan Barker, is happening. He's the co-president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the largest group of unbelievers in the nation, as I understand it, 18,000 people who are registered. He said, something's happening. I remember 15 to 20 years ago counting about six groups today on college campuses, but now there are hundreds. The Freedom From Religion Foundation has been working with the Secular Student Alliance in a joint outreach project to college campuses, and the SSA is real busy just trying to keep up with all the increased affiliates. He said 15 to 20 years ago, now this would be 25 years ago or so, if you went to a college campus, there might have been six across the nation of groups that were not religious. Pastafarians, SSA, Secular Student Alliance, Atheists of America, things like that. Might have been six. Folks, I'm here to tell you that in the last 25 years, it has sprung from six to probably, as we're sitting here this morning, 6,000. Maybe 6,000, probably more. And that on virtually every campus across our nation, in the month of February, there's a Darwin Day celebration that the atheists there on those campuses put on large events to celebrate the naturalistic, atheistic idea of evolution and to gather more young people into their organizations. That's happened in the last 25 years. Right now in the United States of America, there are about 22 to 25 million people who claim not to believe in God, atheists and or agnostics. I drive through Birmingham, Alabama, going down 65 on a regular basis. Birmingham, Alabama has about 1 million people. And... uh, you try to make sure that you don't go through Birmingham, Alabama on a Friday at about 4.30 or 5. And here's why. Because out of those 1 million people, somehow they all have two cars and are driving them both on the interstate at 5.30 on a Friday. We don't know how that's possible, but it certainly seems that way because traffic is at almost a standstill for a number of miles. Multiply Birmingham, Alabama with one million. Now, that's one million people with kids, babies, etc. You fill Birmingham, Alabama with only adults and ask them the question, do you believe in God? And a million of them say absolutely positively not. And then you multiply Birmingham, Alabama by 25. That's the number of cities that would be the capacity of one million people. And every single person in those cities would say, I don't believe in God. That's significant. In fact, it's the largest number that this nation has ever seen, remotely close. Well, and why is that? Dan Barker says, if we can divert just one young mind 
from going into the ministry or from wasting time and money on religion, we've made the world a better place. Nothing could be more destructive and false than that ridiculous, absolutely ludicrous statement. The more people that you teach that there is not a God and that humans have evolved from animals, the worse and worse and worse and worse this world will be. Now, why did I put that up there? I mean, we looked at that in the Bible class session on the fruits of atheism. You need to know the mission. These people are not sitting behind their desk saying, I'm an unbeliever, you believe, who cares? Let's just agree to disagree and I'll do my thing, you do yours. Oh, no. No, this is atheistic evangelism, absolutely positively. And the mission, in case you missed it, from Dan Barker's mouth, the co-president of the Freedom From Religion, one of the largest, maybe the largest unbelieving organizations in the nation, what is his goal? You got kids in this auditorium today? If I can just get to one of them, just one of your kids, and teach that kid that they did not come as a creation from a loving God, but they evolved from primordial slime over multiplied millions of years. I've done what I set out to do. Do you know the freedom from religion has millions of dollars at its fingertips and on a regular basis sues school districts all over the nation because they say something about God on the PA system? I was in North Alabama and the football team right outside of North Alabama had always started their games with a prayer, but it was a public school system and the freedom from religion came and put a lawsuit against them and it was going to take them millions of dollars to fight it because they said it violated the separation of church and state because the PA system was purchased with public funds and you couldn't say anything about God on a system that's published with public, that's purchased with public funds. And within about two weeks a decades-long tradition of starting a football game with a prayer ended because the freedom from religion has a singular idea in mind. And that's to divert one of your young people. Now, they'll take them all, but they'll start with just one. What if, what if we had that mission? Except the opposite and the actual mission of making the world a better place. And our true statement was, if we could just get one young person to recognize their value based on their image of God bearing, and we could get them to treat other people with respect and love, we made the world a better place. Huh? I have been so encouraged this weekend by what you guys have done. We had some lessons yesterday, talked about some things that these young people will learn in schools. We have gone through a lot of the middle school textbooks and written a book called Truth Be Told where we've refuted lots of this. One of the young men came up to me and said, hey, really appreciated the lesson. I learned that stuff last week. So that was, in, no, last year I think he said, in my ninth grade year. I don't remember exactly when. He said, but, but that stuff on the English pepper moss, I'd never thought about how they would get a picture on their books there, right with the peppered moth sitting right next to each other. And they taught me that last year. Isn't that interesting? That that has been known to be false for the last 50, 60 years, and it's still being taught in a school system. And had you not had the foresight to have something like this, one of your young people might have continued to think 
that that's correct. I commend you, applaud you for what you're doing. But the question is, in your sphere of influence, each of you has the ability to influence certain people. Some of you got grandkids. Some of you have kids. Some of you have nieces, nephews. This doesn't stop necessarily even with young people. Now, uh, they understand that if they can get people while they're young, it's easier. But I have seen many, many people who grew into their 30s and 40s, late 20s, and have never been, uh, been shown this material. And when they were, they absolutely were floored that they had not been taught it as young people. KJ from Oklahoma sent us an email. She said, you know, this is so scary. I'm battling this with my 15, almost 16-year-old right now. I should have started earlier, but the things that affected me don't affect him and vice versa. Dinosaurs were the beginning of our problem. I'm so afraid of losing him to the world. Were dinosaurs the beginning of any of your problems for uh, faith understanding? Maybe some of you. Let me tell you, I think probably if you're 40 years old and over, probably not. In fact, if someone had said to me, Kyle, you're going to later in your life travel the country and give an abbreviated dinosaur lesson for one hour, and I say abbreviated because I've got about eight hours of material that we could put out on that. We've got two books, one for young people, one for basically college level and adults. And this is going to be real important to people's faith. Because some people have struggled with a belief in God because of dinosaurs. Do you believe that, Kyle? If you would have said that to me at 16, 17, 18, I would have said, no. There's no way. Now, I might be going and talking about uh, basic Christian values and how a person needs to respond to uh, certain social issues, but I'll never be talking about dinosaurs. Kyle, have you ever had a problem growing up? Did you ever wonder if there was a God? No, never. Did you ever struggle with the idea of the inspiration? I never did. You know, some people say, well, if you didn't struggle with it, then you can't understand it. I find that so very interesting because if when you are five years old and your parents teach you that two plus two is four, and that's true. And as you grow up, you, every time that question comes up, answer two plus two is four, and then you learn that, oh, what that means is if you count two apples and then you have another two and put those together, then you have four apples. Okay, so you think through the process. You recognize that it's valid. And so two plus two is four. And someone says, well, did you learn that when you were a little kid? Well, if you learned it as a little kid and you've held on to it, then that means you can't have your own faith in it. Well, not true. You can learn something as a kid and look at it and think through it and still believe in it. It was always true from the time you were a little kid till now. As we look at that, if you were to ask me, have these things been a problem for me? No, they just, they just never have. Now, I could tell you what has been a problem for me, and it probably hasn't been a problem for you. Maybe for some of you it was. But let me tell you what I'm good at. I'm really good at weed eating. You probably didn't know that about me. I've had formal education in weed eating. I went to a little school called Santa Fe, and we had a shop class, and we had an entire, I think it was about a two-day lesson on weed eating, on which direction you needed to move the head of your weed eater so that the stuff wouldn't shoot back at you, on how to mix the gas properly, on what to do to start a two-cycle weed eater engine, 
Now, I knew lots of those things before I sat in the formal education on weed eating because we had a lawn mowing business, my brothers and I, clean cut lawn services, and we bought an 18 horsepower craftsman riding mower, and I was the youngest brother. And for some reason, they thought that if you had a driver's license, then that entitled you to drive the mower, and that entitled your 13-year-old brother to do the weed eating. And so that's what I did growing up. We had probably 25, 30 yards, and I did the weed eating on most all of them for probably two, two and a half, three years, and on through college. In fact, I was tongue-in-cheek bragging to my children the other day that I'm so good at weed eating, I could be dressed in a suit and not get any grass on me and weed eat my whole yard. Well, we were selling a house, and some people were coming over to look at it. It was a Sunday, I think, as I recall, and I was in my dress clothes, and we needed to get it looking good, and I hadn't weed eaten it. And Drew said, hey, you said you can do it with a suit on. I said, fine, we'll see. So I crank it up. I'm in my dress clothes, and I think, yeah, I can do this. No problem. Now, I learned a couple of lessons. I can. I, I can weed eat in a suit without getting grass on me. With, with two things understood. Number one, it takes at least twice as long because you have to go slower. And number two, wind is a factor. So depending on the wind, I can, mow, I can weed eat with a suit on and not get grass on me. Now, let me tell you what we did not have growing up. We had an 18-horsepower craftsman, what I call a belly mower. And the turn cycle for an 18-horsepower craftsman, the degree turn radius was... It, I mean, if you know much about turn rays, it felt like it was about 65 degrees. And what I mean by that is if you wanted to turn and come straight down right here, you had to start over here and go. And finally, eventually get around to coming down the line straight. It was a very big turn radius, meaning it wasn't easy to turn and it didn't turn very close to when you started spinning the old school steering wheel. That's what I learned to mow on. I had about three acres in North Alabama, and I bought a zero-turn John Deere mower that would go six miles an hour. Now, six miles an hour doesn't sound fast until you get on a John Deere mower and you're going on a three. Uh, like the Husqvarna, one of my buddies bought one. His was about four miles an hour. Uh, I get a little motion sick, and I could literally get motion sick on my lawnmower, my zero-turn. And my son had three acres, and at 11 years old, I decided I was going to get him to start mowing my yard. So at 11 years old, put him on at zero turn. Within just a few times, he can mow my whole yard. And he comes in one day, he said, man, I like mowing that yard. He said, that mower, it's awesome. You can drift well with it. You know what drifting is? You know, I, I had to watch like Fast and the Furious to figure out what it, no, I didn't, but... Uh, Drifting is when your lawn mower is put immediately in the zero turn radius position as it's going full speed so that you're going full speed to the end of the row. You pull this one back as far as you can, push this one forward as far as you can, and the back of your lawn mower does not turn. It drifts around perfectly to now go straight. It's very effective if you don't care that the entire swath of grass is now peeled up from where your tires shifted across it. Now, as an 11-year-old, you don't care about that. You just think, oh, it's all... 
You know what I did to the yard when my son was mowing? We did it. Because I'm good at that. I know that. So I'm doing all the weeding. He's drifting on my two and a half, three acre yard. One day I said, Drew, will you weed it for me? He said, I don't even know how to start that thing. You know what I realized? I had never taught him to weed it. He could drift on a zero turn mower that if you had put me on a zero-turn mower when I was 16 and said, mow this yard, I would have been working the rest of the summer to repay the damage that I did to the person's house and fence and flower bed from not being able to control the thing because I I didn't learn to ride a zero-turn mower until I was probably 25. And my son's doing it 11 years old, but he can't start a weed eater. And I'd been weed eating and professionally and formally for decades I, I just forgot to teach him about a weed eater because hey, he was doing something else and the things that were affecting him weren't affecting me you know I think a lot of us have grown up in the church and we didn't have a problem with the existence of God we didn't have a problem with dinosaurs we didn't have a problem with the inspiration of the Bible and we just think our kids will get it you don't get starting a weed eater you have to be taught to start a weed eater you have to show them how to press that little rubber button and then flip the little switch on the gas thing from the zero to the line. And you can crank all day long, but if you don't flip that one little switch, never going to start for you. And you wouldn't know that unless somebody told you. And see, many of us have thought, oh, they'll just get this. I mean, we know there's a God. Everybody knows there's a God. They'll just get it. They don't just get it. Not when their teachers are standing in front of them saying there's not one. Not when everything they read in their science books says you don't need one. They don't just get it. And so the question, the question is, in your sphere of influence, are you recognizing what's really happening in our society and saying, I need to make sure they're getting this stuff? So your elders are doing that by what we've done this weekend. But if it stays in this auditorium, it's not going far enough. There was a, lady who had a first grader and she read our truth be told book realized it had everything that she felt like her son was going to come in contact with in the school system where they were and she said look I need to get one of these for every kid in my son's first grade class we said okay uh, we'll give I think we gave them to her for three bucks a piece maybe less and she had gone to the principal and said how do I need to get these into the hands of my kids, and he said, well, give them out as Christmas presents to all of your son's fellow students. And that's what she did. Gave them out as Christmas presents to all of her son's fellow students. Very creative, I thought. Called us, got 25 of them or so. We shipped them down. She wrapped them up as Christmas presents. Gave them to all her son. Now, we told her to start out with, said, you know, this is about a 6th, 8th grade book. I mean, it's written on a way higher level than 1st grade. She said, yeah, I know, but I've read it. I want all the stuff in it. And I want our, my son's kids to know this stuff. I said, okay. Sends it to her. The next year in second grade, she writes us back. And she said, let me tell you what happened. She said, gave these away to all the kids in my son's first grade class. The next year, we had a very pro-evolutionary teacher in second grade. And this lady was teaching the kids that they evolved from basically primordial slime. And the kids were saying, hmm, I don't know about that. And one kid, not affiliated with the, the 
mom's child really other than was in the class before. He said, well, that's not right. What you're teaching us about evolution is not right. And she said, what do you mean it's not right? It's in this textbook right here. He said, well, I've got a book at home that tells me God created things and that this stuff on evolution is wrong, talking about the book that he had received in first grade on a sixth grade level that apparently he read the whole thing. And she said, well, that book's wrong. And he said, well, it makes better sense than what you're telling me. Hmm. It does make better sins. But we've got to show them that it does. I can absolutely stand before you today without question and say Christianity is the only perfect philosophical, ethical, moral system ever devised. The fact that God exists is as scientific or more than any statement ever, ever uttered. The fact that Jesus Christ is God's son is absolutely provable. The fact that the Bible is God's word is beyond the shadow of a doubt to anybody who has looked at the evidence and thought through it reasonably. But the question is, are we showing that to people? And are you showing it to your young people? One of the most glorious things in the whole world is knowing that after you leave this planet, there's somewhere better for you. And you don't get that from atheism. You don't get that from unbelief. You get that from one concept. And that's if you know that your Savior, Jesus Christ, gave his life for you, that you've obeyed what he says you need to do to inherit eternal salvation, and you've listened to his promise where he says, I'm coming back for you. I talk about these things because you need to know them, but ultimately to get you to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Because being able to stand in front of an audience of 1,500 people while there's an atheist who is challenging your belief and you say to him, I know I've got a better place to go after this. And you mean it with all your heart? Now that's something everybody wants. Is it something you have? Do you need to respond to your creator in an obedient way this morning? Do you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way? If you do, I hope you will, as we stand and as we sing.
wouldn't mind remain standing, we're going to sing this wonderful, wonderful uh, song, Thy Word. Uh, as we close, Peter Neal is going to come and lead us in a closing prayer. If you wouldn't mind coming to the front while we're singing this song, Peter, that would be great. And he will also uh, ask a blessing for our food. I hope that you get a chance to talk to Kyle and thank him for this weekend. I hope you get a chance to look at the wonderful resource table that he has mentioned a few times while he's been here. And uh, hopefully you will find some things there that you uh, can get and, uh, and follow up on this study. We do have lunch. We have plenty of food for everyone that's here, whether you're registered or not. Uh, please walk across West Derwin to our Family Life Center. You can go right out through uh, the hallway, but directly behind the foyer, or you can go outside and then uh, walk down from there or take your car. Uh, we do have lunch planned there. We'll have a, a song and a prayer at the end of our eating time, and then we're going to have more fellowship. Uh, another word of saying it is cleaning up and straightening up. Uh, because we love each other so dearly, we're anxiously anticipating that time of uh, shared relationship. It's been a great, great weekend, and again, we appreciate everyone's participation. Let's sing this great song of faith, and then Peter will dismiss us in prayer. In Acts 5, um, the apostles are preaching Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. And of course, the Pharisees and Sadducees don't like that. And they say, to stop or we will arrest you. They continue doing it. And the Pharisees and Sadducees say, stop doing it. We're going to throw you in jail. Um, then in Acts 5, Peter, the apostle, says, we must obey God rather than human beings. But then starting in Acts 5, verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Then a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared to him in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, 
you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for everything you've given us. Father, we know that we are fighting with you and not against you. Help us to know that you are right beside us uh, with your spirit, and let us to boldly lead us to boldly preach your word, uh, not only while we're at church, but also the other seven, the other six days of the week. Let us always increase in faith, hope, and love in you, and let us always be brave and stand firm in your teaching, your laws, and your ways. Father, bless the food that we're about to eat, and let us always remember you and everything that we do. Let your will be done in all things, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.